If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be reading uh, verses 32 to 52 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this printed for you in the bulletin. That is Mark 10 verses 32 through 52. Please hear the word of the Lord. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be quiet or silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. On the way. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. The journey is more important than the destination. Have you ever heard that? It's kind of a cliche, right? That phrase, the journey is more important than the destination. But here's the question do you agree with it? Is it true? Uh, for my own part, I'm not convinced. It's a cliche, but I'm not convinced it's true. 
After all, there is no point in the journey unless you have a destination. Isn't that true? A journey to nowhere is good for nobody. You've got to be headed somewhere. and that, In fact, that's true about life, about everybody's life. The Bible says every one of us is headed towards a destination. We're going to one day stand before our Creator. And either we're going to go into heaven forever or we're going to go into hell forever. There is an awesome and mighty eternal destination that we all face. That's important. But here's the little bit of truth in that cliché. Often the journey prepares you for the destination when you get there. In fact, there are some things that you learn on the way that you can't learn in any other way than by walking the path that's laid out before you. That's what this story is about. If you'll notice there in verse 32, it introduces it by saying they were on the road or they were on the way with Jesus up to Jerusalem. And then at the very last verse, verse 52, it says that Bartimaeus, when he was healed and saw again, he followed him on the way, on the road. See, the beginning and the end of the story are bracketed by these references to the way, the road that they're walking with Jesus, showing you that all this is about how to be with Jesus on the journey. Here's the sum. Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is what we all have to learn to get ready for heaven. He's teaching his disciples, it is better to sacrifice yourself than it is to serve yourself. Now that's a whopper of a lesson, isn't it? It is better to sacrifice yourself than to serve yourself. If you look at your bulletin, there are three questions that we want to address about this theme today. Uh, first of all, where are we going with Jesus? Secondly, why do we need to go there? And lastly, how do we get on the way with Jesus? Let's look together at each of these. First of all, where are we going with Jesus? If you'll look at verses 32 to 34, it's very clear Jesus knows where they're going, even if they don't know. They should know. Because when Jesus tells them this third time what he's going to face in Jerusalem, he's really just repeating the same things he says the first two times. Yes, he's giving a little few extra details here. He tells them, for example, that not only would the Jews arrest them, but they would eventually hand them over to the Gentiles, which is a new detail. And he adds, they will spit on me and mock me and flog me before they kill me. But the rest of it is the same thing Jesus has been trying to tell them the whole time. When I go to Jerusalem, I go to suffer. My way, the way of my journey, is a way of suffering. And if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to suffer too. Now, I want you to notice something. This is a small detail, but it is so important. Do you see the difference between how Jesus is approaching the suffering that they're going towards and how the disciples are approaching it? Look at verse 32. First of all, how are the disciples approaching it? What does it say? It says they were amazed, shocked, befuddled, confused, and they were afraid, terrified. Now, doesn't that sound an awful lot like you and me? Many times. When we face suffering, that is a common twin sort of a response that comes right out of us. Amazement. Why is this happening to me? Why me? Why this? Why now? Why? Why me? What's going on? I'm confused. 
or fear, or maybe both. Fear says, am I ever going to recover from this? Will I ever get over it? What's going to happen if I don't ever get over it? All those things begin to swirl around our minds even as they did the disciples. But notice verse 32 again. How is Jesus approaching the suffering? They're trembling with every step. They're questioning with every step. What is Jesus doing? He was walking ahead of them. What a haunting detail. And I pray this detail haunts you this morning. Haunt in a good way. Especially as we come to the table. Our Lord Jesus Christ knew where his father was sending him. Into death. Into death on the cross. And yet he went there almost with an eagerness. When you walk ahead of people who are going slow, what does that say? You're ready to get there. You don't want to be delayed. The disciples are trembling in fear and swirling with questions, and Jesus is going like a war horse into battle. He can't wait. What an amazing contrast. Why was Jesus' approach to suffering so different than mine? Well, for this simple reason. Jesus knew that he was going there on purpose. You see, he knew his life was not, humanly speaking, it was not his own. Just like your life and mine, it belonged to his Father in heaven. And that his Father in heaven had a path for him to travel. And yes, that path included suffering. But he knew that because God had ordained it, it would turn out the way God wanted it to. It would end in glory. And in fact, he says, even though I'm going to be treated this way and even killed, after three days, I'm going to rise. Something good is going to come out of my suffering. In fact, the greatest good that has ever been known to humanity came out of Jesus' suffering. Jesus knew that, and so he strode to Jerusalem with intensity. Isn't that good to know coming to the table that our Lord Jesus, when he went to die for us, went eagerly? He went willingly. No one drug him there. He would not be delayed. He had to go because he wanted to reconcile us to the Father. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of the missionary Jim Elliot. Jim Elliott died shortly after he began a mission to the Amazon rainforest, a particular tribe they were trying to reach with the gospel, who had never heard about Jesus. And they ended up killing Jim, as well as a few other of the men that first went. Elizabeth Elliott understood suffering. I think you'll agree. She lost her husband quickly. She had to live the rest of her life without him. There's much we could say about her example. But she wrote a book about this later. And she said, you know, something helped me to understand my suffering that I experienced years later. She said, I went, I think it was to Scotland. I was on a trip, and I went to visit some shepherds. And I was out there with the shepherds, and it happened to be medicine day in the sheepfold. And the way that works is you had to treat the sheep for various parasites and skin and hoof diseases. And the way they did that is they filled a big old vat full of medicine, and they took each sheep one at a time and dipped the sheep all the way down the medicine where just the nose was sticking out and they held them there. 
for a few seconds, and then they pulled him out. Now put yourself in their hooves for a minute. If sheep could think, what were they thinking? Amazed. Why is this happening to me? Why me? Why this? Why now? Fear. Am I ever going to survive this? He's trying to kill me. He must hate me. And yet, Elizabeth Elliot says, as I watched one after the other, every sheep would fight it with everything in them, and the shepherd had to really wrestle them. But he took all his might, and he plunged them and held them down with all of his might until they had had enough time in that medicine, and then picked them up. She said, what the sheep could not know, what they could not understand or compute, was that the pain and the trauma and the suffering had a good design in the shepherd's plan. They couldn't understand that. There's no way they could. And yet it was so. It was true. Jesus is teaching his disciples here as they go along the way. The same thing is true with you. The Bible says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes on you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. Don't be surprised when you suffer for my name. In fact, the Bible says if you're connected to Jesus, you will get the same treatment he got, which means suffering. And when we're in it, we almost never feel like it's going to be good. There's no way it could be good. When we're in it, we are swallowed. It's as if God is trying to kill us. And yet here's the thing that's true of us, just as it was true of Jesus. God intends good for his sheep, for his children. The Bible also says, for a little while you will suffer. You see, as a Christian, it's always a little while and only a little while. And then after that, it says, God will raise you up, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. You see, God knows how to work through suffering. He knows how to use it in our lives. The disciples didn't need to be amazed or afraid or surprised. And you and I don't either. We have this wonderful thing as Christians. We have Jesus Christ living in us. That's profound, isn't it? Jesus lives in us. So that when we face suffering because of that union with him, we can face it with that same confidence that he had. We may fight it first, but we can learn over time to settle ourselves under the hand of the shepherd. That's where we're going with Jesus. Let's look secondly at why we need to go there. Look at verses 35 to 45. It should be clear as you read it why God chooses to work through suffering. Um, Because somebody might be saying, well, why does God have to do that? Uh, Why couldn't he figure out another way to treat his sheep? Surely there's a better way, right? And I, I think that all the time too. And yet it becomes clear as we look at dear old James and John that there's just something inside of us that the only way it can get out, and it needs to come out, To get to heaven, it needs to come out. And the only way it can come out is through learning to trust God through hardship. Let's look at what's inside of them. It's temptation. Verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. 
Have you ever prayed like that? You say, no, I've never prayed like that. Well, of course, you've probably never said those words. That's bold. It's a special kind of bold. I find, though, that this has never been the text of my prayer, but it's often been the subtext of my prayer. I don't know about you. I'll say holy things, you know, to the Lord. But inside, I'm really saying, God, I just want you to do what I'm asking. I've already figured it out. You don't have to worry about figuring it out. I got it. I got the plan. Just do it. Just bless it. There's a temptation in John and James's heart. Even after they've heard all about Jesus' suffering, they are still tempted to do something that all of us are tempted to do, and that is to serve ourselves, to seek our own gain and glory. Jesus says, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, very simply, grant us glory. I want to sit at your right, and I want my brother at your left, and we want glory undiluted. Notice what they leave out. They don't say, Jesus, give me your glory after, after we've suffered with you for a while. They leave that part out, which is a critical part of the Bible's promise of glory. It isn't wrong to ask to share glory with Jesus. That's what every Christian will get one day. But it is wrong to think of it as a self-seeking glory, where I don't have to suffer, where I don't have to do anything hard, where I don't have to challenge myself at all for the Lord. I can just go up to heaven in an escalator made of gold. Didn't happen for Jesus that way. And so what a self-seeking mentality that thinks it can happen for me that way. Think about it. So embedded in me is self-serving that I am even crazy enough to think I can know better than God when it comes to the plan for my life. Did y'all hear me? I'm telling on myself. And maybe you can relate. I sometimes think I can know better than the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of the seas and all that is in them, of the vast reaches of outer space that we can't even measure, of every breath that I've ever drawn in my whole life. I think I can got a better plan than him. And all I got to do is present it to him and he'll be like, got it, signed. What a crazy thought. And yet sin makes us crazy. Now look, I'm comforted by the fact that Jesus doesn't jump down these boys' throats and throttle them. It's interesting because sometimes Jesus does respond in ways like that. Sometimes he does seem to lose a little patience and he just jumps on people. Here he doesn't do that. In fact, I, I don't know that I've ever seen Jesus in any other story respond so gently Because Jesus chooses first not to talk about them, he starts to talk about himself. He he turns their attention away from them and says, hey, listen, I have a cup that I, I have to drink. I have a baptism with which I need to be baptized. Now, we've got to think about those two images. Those are really important Bible images, the cup and the baptism. They're so important, in fact, that we still observe them in the church today. We're going to observe one of them this morning. The one of the cup, the cup and the baptism. Now, what do they mean in the Bible? Well, you might not know this. This is very important to know, though. Both of those images are always, first of all, negative images. 
Both of them have to do first with the judgment of God, not his blessing. In the Old Testament, for example, uh, Isaiah says, or speaking from God, I have a cup filled with the wine of my wrath to the top, and all the wicked will one day have to drink it down to its dregs. They will become drunk with the cup of the wine of my wrath. And all through the prophets, you read about that cup. That's why Jesus said on the night before he was crucified, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass. It wasn't a good thing to drink that cup. And yet Jesus says, I've got a cup to drink that the Father has placed before me. In fact, later, when we drink a cup of sweet wine, it's only because Jesus already drank the bitter cup for us on the cross. Baptism, same thing. Actually, did you know baptism is not a good thing in most of the Bible? For example, Noah's flood, which the Bible describes as a baptism of the world. The Red Sea, which the Bible describes as a baptism of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. How did it end up with the world, with the flood? How did it end up with Pharaoh at the Red Sea? Drowned. In fact, the first thing baptism stands for is a drowning. Because of the wrath of God against sin. It's so bad it must be drowned. It must be swallowed. It must be erased. And Jesus says, I've got a baptism to be baptized with. And in fact, today, when we receive a baptism that's happy and a baptism that symbolizes cleansing and new birth, it's only because he got drowned in the first baptism. Jesus is trying to show the disciples, God has a plan here. And that plan includes my even me, the Son of God, laying down my life for you, drinking a cup, being baptized with wrath. If that's the case, don't you see? The temptation in your heart to serve yourself is a lie. You think self-service is the good life, the ticket to the good life, but it's not. The ticket to the good life is to follow me in the way of self-sacrifice. Because when I lay down my life, I receive the riches and treasures of God's presence, and I receive it for you and for me. So that when you lay down your life, you receive the pleasure and smile of God. Stop serving yourselves as if he's saying. Stop doing that. They're so bold as to say, oh, Jesus, no worries. We're able to drink the cup along with you. We're able to be baptized along with you. And Jesus says, oh, boys, oh, my boys, you don't know what you're talking about. You will be baptized, all right. You will drink the cup all right, but you will drink it only because I drank it first. Verse 45 is really in some ways the key verse of the entire gospel of Mark right here in front of us this morning. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. For many. A ransom is a payment that you make to get something back that you lost. Jesus drinks the cup, is baptized with judgment to pay the cost to get us back for God. When we suffer as Christians, we don't suffer by way of ransom. You can't ransom anybody. I can't ransom anybody. You can't even ransom yourself. No matter how much you suffer for God, quote unquote, you won't earn heaven. He alone can earn heaven. But when you get heaven through his ransom, 
you best expect that you're going to have to say no every day to your heart of self-seeking. You're going to have to die to yourself so that you can live for God. Laying down your life, Jesus says, you will find it. But if you try to keep it, you will lose it. We know this is true in most areas of life. Think about this. At work, do you ever work with teams at your job? What about that guy or that girl on the team that's only out for themselves? How does it go for them? Are they popular? Do they make friends and influence people? Do they even really do a good job most of the time? No, usually selfishness. We think when it's our own selfishness, that's the ticket. But we know in other people, selfishness leads to bad things. Or think about the person that's that's only out to be famous or only out to be rich. Instead of just simply doing what God has given them to do through the gifts he gave them as best as they can for his glory, and they may become rich and they may become famous and they may not. The person that's just out to be famous or just out to be rich usually is not a very good person. And usually they're not even very good at what they do. They're just famous for being famous. I could name a few people, but I don't want to offend celebrities this morning. They may be watching. Think about it. We give ourselves a pass. We think selfishness is the way. I'll take care of myself. Look out for number one. And yet when we look at other people, we see it as clear as the day is long. Selfishness leads to muck. It's gross. That's what Jesus is teaching. Resist the temptation to exalt yourself. Resist the temptation to serve yourself. Because even I didn't do that. Because I had to ransom you. Now, lastly, this morning, how do we get on the way with Jesus? Let's look at that. This is the best part. Verses 46 to 52, Jesus shows that not only is his way a way of suffering, it's not just a way of suffering, it's also a way of temptation, but it's not just a way of temptation, it's also a way of mercy. Here's Jesus crossing one of the last towns, before he gets to Jerusalem. In fact, next week when we come in here, we're going to begin talking about Holy Week. It's going to start with Palm Sunday. We're going to begin that next week. He's going to be already in Jerusalem. This is his last stop on the way into town. And what does he do? He heals a person. He heals a blind man named Bartimaeus. This is the last healing recorded in Mark's Gospel. And it is the only healing, the only one in all of Mark, where the person who got healed is named In fact, he's named specifically. His name is Bartimaeus. His dad's name is Timaeus, and he's from Jericho. We, we know exactly where to find this man if we want to. In fact, one scholar uh, has pointed out in his research that in ancient documents like this, when names are given so specifically, it's usually because that person is still alive and known within the community, and they're giving you the information so that if you want to go ask him if this is really accurate, you can and so maybe the first recipients of Mark's gospel would have said, hey, I know Bart. He's a deacon at our church. I'll go ask him. I'll go see. Bart, is this the way it happened? Or were you really blind blind? Did people really try to ask you to shut up? And he would have told them. 
Now observe what he does and observe what Jesus does in return. The blind man cries. He hears, verse 47, that Jesus is passing by. And he cried out over and over again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I mean, just look at what this blind beggar understands. He knows Jesus is the son of David, the king, the promised king, the one who, like David, would be king for the blessing of the people. But yet he's greater than David because he's calling on David for what only God can give him, mercy, pity, grace. Yes, people try to rebuke him. Notice it doesn't say the disciples. Maybe they've learned their lesson from when they rebuked the parents bringing the babies. Remember that? So now this is probably not the disciples, but other members of the crowd who are saying, Shut up already. You're being annoying. And yet the man, kept, it says, he cried out all the more. Meaning he kept saying it louder and he kept saying it more often. Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, you better call that man over here. And they do, and notice what blind Bart does. He threw off his cloak, verse 50. He sprang up and he came to Jesus. Now that just shows you some enthusiasm. Especially if you're stark blind. To throw your cloak off, to spring up, and to make a beeline to Jesus, you must really want to get there. And he does. And notice, Jesus asks Bart the exact same question that he had asked James and John. Compare and contrast it. The question in verse 51 compares exactly to the question in verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? And I want you to see, this blind beggar is far ahead of the, even the disciples in his way of following and understanding Jesus. Because his answer is not, pour on the glory, Lord. Sit me at your right hand. His answer is simple, mercy. Lord, he says, Rabbi, let me just see again. And immediately it says, when he got his sight back, what did he do? He followed Jesus on the way. He got on the road. He fell behind and went. What was he asking? Jesus, have mercy. Give me sight so I can see to follow you. Better to see you with, my dear. This man had learned about Jesus and had fallen in love with someone he had never even seen. And he was begging Jesus for the privilege of being able to see the one he had fallen in love with by faith. And Jesus granted it. And the man followed. Jesus, where are we going? You can imagine. Oh, I just told the other boys, going to die. Really? I'm in. Sign me up. Sign me up. You have shown me mercy. Don't you see? I want you to observe it, how powerful a force mercy is to change a heart. Mercy changes hearts where other things don't. Mercy changes them. Think about the great um, musical Les Miserables. That whole thing is about mercy. First opening scene, Jean Valjean, criminal, gets caught stealing from a pastor. The pastor covers for him. 
says, hey, I gave it to him. It's a gift. And he sings. I won't sing it to you, but he says, I have bought your soul for God, John Valjean. The whole rest of the story is about how John, bought by mercy, is now living a life of mercy. And so with us, it's mercy alone that can prepare us for a life of sacrifice, of suffering, and of the resistance of the temptation to exalt myself. This morning, as we come to the table, I want to urge you, Jesus Christ is here today. The Son of David is among us today. He's here. And he's asking us the same question he asked his disciples and that he asked the blind man. What do you want me to do for you? And I pray our answer is not, glory, no suffering, glory. I've already got it figured out, Lord, come bless it. I pray that our answer is more like the blind guy. Have mercy on me. This morning, do you thirst for mercy? It's a sincere question. Do you thirst for mercy? Listen, a thirst for mercy is not the same thing as feeling bad for yourself. That's a whole other thing. We can talk about that in another sermon, but that's not what a thirst for mercy is. A thirst for mercy is not pining over your unrealized dreams. That's another thing, too. We'll talk about that another time. Thirsting for mercy is knowing your position before the holy God. Knowing your need and pleading for his pity. Begging for your sight that you might see the one that you've fallen in love with by faith. Here's good news. If you thirst for mercy, there's a cup to come drink. If you thirst for mercy, there's a baptism with which you can be baptized. He drank the curse so we could be satisfied with the blessing. He was inundated with the flood of wrath so that we could pass through as if on Noah's ark and be cleansed. This morning, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Come and be filled. Come and see again. Come and follow on the way with Jesus. Amen.